coming up on Better Place Project. In this episode, we're going to chat about fractals, which is the mathematical discovery that highlights or perhaps even proves that we are all connected. Dr. Blundell talks about the three core concepts of OICA and how they are connected. We chat about what all this has to do with humanity right now, what we can learn from the cosmos, and how we really should be examining how we interact with nature. Make the world a better place. Make the world a better place. Hey, hey, I'm Steve Norris. Welcome to Better Place Project, where each week we shine a light on amazing humans from every corner of the planet who are doing extraordinary things to help make the world a better place, including sharing their knowledge with us on how we can be living healthier, happier, more purposeful lives. How did we get here, and where do we go from here? In this five-part series, ecologist and founder of OICA, Dr. Rich Blundell, takes us on a journey of the cosmos. But this is way more than a history lesson about the universe. This is about you, and me, and everyone, and everything around us. How it all came to be, and how we are all connected. You see, nature has intelligence, a magnificent, sublime, complex intelligence that science is just now beginning to understand. What would it be like if we felt that intelligence inside of us? In this series, you will discover how to tap into and feel that innate intelligence that is already inside of you right now. Once humankind begins to understand this, to know this, to feel this, we will be living in a very different, much more beautiful world. So join us on this journey. It just might change your life. In this week's episode, we make it to part three, Earthea, which starts about four and a half billion years ago, where you guessed it, our planet Earth is created. Earth was a harsh place back then, frozen for millions of years, but eventually oceans and clouds started to form and new patterns started to emerge. In this episode, we're going to chat about fractals, which is the mathematical discovery that highlights or perhaps even proves that we are all connected. Dr. Blundell talks about the three core concepts of OICA, and how they are connected. We chat about what all this has to do with humanity right now, what we can learn from the cosmos, and how we really should be examining how we interact with nature. Now, as with previous episodes, we've been following along a series of short films, about 10 minutes each. So to get the most out of this episode, we recommend you pause this podcast right now Scroll down to the episode notes where you'll find links to watch one film called Fractals and another called Earthea. After you've done that, come back here and we'll get started. And now to part three of History of the Cosmos, here's Dr. Rich Blundell. Welcome back, Rich. How are we doing? Good. Steve, how are you? Doing fantastic. We made it to episode three, and you and I were talking just before we hit the record button, and we thought, you know, at the very 
very first question I asked you in episode one was, why are we doing this? And I think it'd be uh, great to address that again, since we haven't for a couple of weeks. So why again are we telling the, the history of the cosmos? Well, basically because we need to. In other words, we need this. We need this wisdom. We, we're living into and through a crisis, uh, a crisis of meaning. Um, and one of the ways to respond to, to that is to find new ways of meaning. And that's going to require new ways of thinking and new ways of relating to the world. And I think my proposal with Oika is that inherent to this story, this cosmic story, is a deep source of meaning and the wisdom that we're going to need to respond to this crisis that we're in, which some people call the meaning crisis. So, um, yep. And this is, a way, this is a way of recovering that wisdom. Gotcha. And you just mentioned Oika, which we talk about in detail. That's the, that's the concept and the company that you, that you founded. And for our listeners, go back and listen to episode one to get a description on that. And, uh, so can we also, Rich, can you do a quick recap for us, starting from the, the very first episode, Primordia, and essentially just in you know 60 seconds or what have sure. you, a minute or two, uh, get us up to this point where we are in history right now? Sure. We, we were very careful to start in the mystery. The idea here is that we don't know everything. We do know a lot, but we don't know everything. And everything that we do know actually comes with an embedded mystery within it. And because we don't know what that, I mean, this is the nature of mystery is that we don't know what it is. And so uh, we just wanted to pay homage to that mystery. Uh, then we started with the Big Bang. You know, the, the first big miracle to emerge out of that mystery is the Big Bang. And in that moment, uh, there we, we've discovered that in that moment, there were these tiny little quantum fluctuations that ended up getting recorded. Um, and the fundamental forces got sorted out. And we looked at the cosmic microwave background radiation, which is a picture of the, the primordial light of the universe. And we discovered that it is actually an ecosystem, that the tiny little differences in the temperature of the light made, uh, made it possible for there to be the first relationships. And it's on those relationships that everything in the universe that we that we experience today uh, was created. So, so the co complexity of the universe and the relationships that we inhabit today are the outcomes of those minute fluctuations. And all of this is governed by deep ecological dynamics. Uh, and so that brought us up to 380,000 years after the Big Bang. And then we this in the second episode, uh, which corresponds to the the short film Celestia. Uh, this one actually covered about 10 billion years of cosmic evolution. And we witnessed how those fundamental forces when put into play with things like atoms of hydrogen and helium and electromagnetism and gravity, when you, when you let all those things play out, you create this vast um, zoo of cosmic creatures that we call stars, galaxies, supernovas, neutron stars, pulsars, all the things that we can, you know, see in the night sky. Um, we watched these same ecological dynamics play out to create all these things. And we also noticed, by the way, that human beings, you know, today and throughout human history have looked to the stars and wondered what they are. And it's in that wondering that many of the narratives 
that we live by today. By the way, we also talked about narrative and, and how powerful that is. Um, that we that we still live our lives in, in many ways um, based on the narratives that we imagined that we saw in the night sky. So that's um, Celestia, and that brought us through. Um, I think we ended Celestia in the realm of galactic dynamics, talked about how spiral arms of galaxies form in very surprising ways that we didn't, that are, that are hard to see. But once you see them, you realize that it's, it requires an active imagination to understand how um, the spiral arms of a galaxy move. And so um, we learned that. So we let the galaxy teach us how to think like that in, in an imaginal way. And then we ended it with, um, um, I guess I guess that's where we ended it. We ended it with galactic dynamics, and we're going to pick pick up those galactic dynamics in the first part of the next uh, section, which I call Earthea. So it corresponds to the short film called Earthea. Gotcha. Which is uh, what this episode is about, and we left off, I believe, about four point six billion years ago. I think that's what you mentioned in the video. Um, and that will today's episode is going to take us from 4.6 billion up until about what point in time? I think about two. That will be about two, two and a half, two and a half billion years ago. Um, yeah, that's that's where this one was. A period called the Huronian glaciation when life kind of hibernated for. 300 million years. So that's that's where we'll end this episode. Gotcha. But during the time frame of this episode. Wow, uh, you know, watching the video, that was a pretty, uh, pretty hostile time, was it not? <laughs> yeah, you could could say that creative destruction. Um, but let me let me start just real quickly with a few bullet points on what I think the take home messages are from this episode. Please. Um, the first is that what what I want people to notice is how we move seamlessly from physics to astronomy and then from astronomy to geology, and then from geology to chemistry, and then from chemistry to biology. What we're going to see is how there's this line of continuity that links all of what we used to think of as separate disciplines. They're not. They're actually all on a continuum from, from the, the early physics of the universe to the biology that's still going on in our bodies today. It's, it's all one big continuity. The second take-home message is that we are on an incredibly rare and precious planet. You, we can't, it's just unimaginable the improbabilities uh, at play that 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 came that a, a planet like ours would come about from. The third is that we're gonna see how the actual planet is participating in the creation of life. There's that there's a phrase, I think it's from the movie Jurassic Park, where like the the complexity scientist says life finds a way, and that's yeah. true. Jeff life Goldblum, right? Yeah, Jeff Goldblum. Great line. It's incredible. It's, it's true that life is incredibly resilient, and it will find a way. But but I think it's also important to think about it this way: not only does life find a way, but life is the way that the Earth found. See, like this is what Earth. The message of Earth is that life itself is an is a planetary dynamic. It's it's really a geological dynamic that found biology via chemistry. <laughs> so I hope this will come clear as we go. But this is one of those things where it's a new way of thinking about what life is. Life doesn't just find a way. Life is the way that a planet found. 
The other one is uh, another one is that climate change is real. We're going to see in this episode that there was this moment. It's called the Great Oxygen Catastrophe, when the atmosphere of our planet fundamentally shifted from one state to another, and with that came incredible disruption and opportunities for other life forms. But the point is that life, being resilient as it is, can actually do things that can change, fundamentally change the climate, the atmosphere of a planet. That's important to know that it can happen. It's happened before and it's happening now. And we're the ones doing it this time. So that's another miss. And then one last thing I just want to make sure we understand here is that we're going to be looking at the fossil record a lot in this episode. And one of the things I realized is that rocks don't lie. You know, if you're looking at the fossil record, it's telling you a story about what happened, but that's not, it's not a political story. It's not a, you know, it's not made up. It's, it's, it's not out to explain anything. It's just telling you what happened and, and it doesn't lie. We can trust the story that we're reading in the, in the, in the pages of the fossil record. So those are all, and, and, and these are the evidence. The other thing is that we have really good coherent evidence for how this story played out. And so these are all things that I just, we're hoping pe- we can kind of keep in mind as we, as we move through the story now. All great points. And now things start getting even more interesting and exciting. So where are we at now, Rich? We're getting up to the formation of the solar system, correct? Where we left it off last time was that we were looking at how galaxies form and how they migrate through the universe. And when you have galaxies moving around the universe, there's bound to be a collision at one point or another. And when galaxies collide, they don't collide, you know, like objects, they, they collide more like gravitational fields into each other. And when you have gravitational fields colliding, um, it tends to trigger, it tends to trigger events. And in this case, it can trigger the collapse of a, of a nebula that's in that galaxy. And so this is what happened. This is what we think happened somewhere in the vicinity of where we are now. There was this perturbation that caused the gravitational collapse of a nebula. And once you start that process and get it going, it can turn into a supernova. That supernova is going to create all kinds of recycled debris. Okay, so we've now got the materials that are created in nucleosynthesis, the elements of the periodic table, clumped together in different ways, dispersed throughout an area of space. And it's kind of like a debris field. And at the center of the debris field, because of the gravitational attraction, you get the the ignition of a nuclear furnace that we call a star. So what we've got now is what we call a, a protoplanetary disk. So it's a there's a star in the middle, and you've got this disk of fiery, rocky debris spinning around it. And just due to standard physics that we can still model today, you get this disk forming. It's called an accretionary disk. It's called an accretionary disk because it's growing, it's accreting. And as it flattens, you get high density of asteroids and planetesimals, big chunks of of, of rock and ice coming together. And once you get a, 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 a um, once you get a planetesimal nucleated, in other words, it becomes the nucleus of attraction, it can attract more and more particles. And what you get are, are planets that sweep around in this disk 
and they sweep out a, an orbit as they go around and as they orbit the star they're kind of like little vacuum cleaners they suck up all the bits and the bits adhere to it through gravity and you you it starts to take on that familiar form of a solar system that we can see this big star in the middle with planets circling in different orbits further and further further out uh, and so over time it, it starts to look more and more like our solar system what's interesting here um, and this is a process that we see again and again and again throughout this whole cosmic story is this process of differentiation so what happens is that because the star is sending out these constant streams of photons and and, and cosmic rays you get what we call the solar wind and the solar wind is blowing against these new planets that are forming. So as these planets come together and, and the, the, the trapped gases that are in the rocks and the water that's in those rocks, it, it escapes because you're heating it up and it, it escapes. But because you've got this solar wind blowing, especially close in by the sun, it blows all those gases and water vapor further out into the outer reaches of the solar system. So this is differentiation toward the, toward the middle, in close to the sun, you, you see rocky planets. They don't have any gases. The gases have gotten blown out into the solar system. But then further out in the solar system, you see planets that can retain that gas and they have their own atmospheres like, like Jupiter and, and um, Neptune and Venus. They all have gaseous atmospheres. But the, the, there's one area of this zone, this zone of differentiation, which is not too close to the sun, but not too far away. It's in, this incredibly narrow band that we call the habitable zone and it just so happens that one rocky planet formed in that space but if you look out you know at our planet today you'll see it's got it's got an atmosphere it's got oceans it's got water the early earth wouldn't have had any of that the early earth would have been you know at 4.4 billion years ago would have been or 4.5 billion years ago would have just been it's incredibly like rocky volcanic magma stream and there would have been this constant bombardment of asteroids and planetesimals smashing into it it's a completely inhospitable place and it's right around this time 4.5 billion years ago that one particularly huge chunk probably about the size of the planet mars slams into the earth and just half of it gets sort of consumed into the earth like the nickel and the iron that was in that thing got got consumed by the earth became part of the earth's mantle and then it ricocheted off and in the process of doing all of this um it did two really important things one was that it tilted the earth's axis so no longer is it perpendicular perfectly perpendicular to the plane of the the disc it's now you know 20 something degrees off because of that that's why we have the seasons seasons yeah right summer winter i'm sorry um Summer, fall, winter, spring, spring, spring yeah. summer, winter, fall, <laughs> spring, summer, fall, winter. Um, that in itself. Okay. So remember I was talking about this thing called differentiation, the differentiation of the planetary, the accretionary disc. Sure. Well, that differentiation is now transmuted onto the differentiation of the seasons. You see, like if you look at the cosmos and you're, and you have a radar for differentiation, you start to see it everywhere. You see it in the planetary the accretionary disk you see it in the actual the, the earth itself is differentiated you have this inner core which is like sort of semi-liquid nickel iron 
And then you have this mantle, which is more sort of plastic and liquid. And then you have this hard, crusty lithosphere on the outside. That's differentiation. There's differentiation happening all over the place. Anyway, so we have this earth now. It's uh, incredibly inhospitable. It's tilted on its axis and it has a moon because the remnants of that Theia impact event is what would eventually become our moon. Um, and so it's because of that impact that we have tides. Like we don't have any ocean yet, but we, but here's, here's where we get the ocean. Remember all that gas that was getting blown off of those inner planets out into the outer atmosphere. Well, that carried a lot of water vapor out there. And because there's all these um, asteroids that are moving around through that water, they're picking it up and they're, and a lot of them are getting carried back into the Earth's gravitational field. And when, and when they land, they carry a lot of water. Over time, that water can accumulate. It gets released from the, the crystal structure of rocks, and it starts to accumulate on the surface. So the Earth's starting to cool now. It's got these little depressions all over it. Those depressions are starting to fill up with water. And what we find dissolved in that water are a lot of minerals and just um, impurities from from the dissolution of rocks and they're starting to accumulate in all these little ponds. So this is what the, you know, this is what the first several, you know, hundred million years of the earth's history would have looked like. It's just this slow accumulation of water and um, highly volcanic, lots of, you know, constant earthquakes and, and very inhospitable. Yeah. And like you said at the beginning of the episode, just, just you just highlighted just a number of incredible things that had to happen you know there had to be water on some of these asteroids that they brought and slammed into the earth to bring that moisture there you know the fact that uh, that it was a big enough blast that it created the moon it, and 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 that the blast you know the the force of that blast had to be just so much and that you know that the moon was was just the right amount of space <laughs> away for us to get that rotation for us to get the you know the you know the, the the gravity and the and the tides and everything that we have it's just you know uh, amazing the the things that had to coincide um you know for for us to even be put in position at this point in time that's kind of yeah. this is where we kind of put the pieces of the puzzle in place for the next you know few billions of years uh for us to evolve correct yes. this is pretty much yeah. It, it's incredibly improbable, the things that have happened. Yeah. However, we don't want to fall into the trap of like predetermining it. Like in other words, that's one way to look at it, that it was incredibly improbable. But another way to look at it is that that life conformed to whatever it was. So it didn't have to be exactly what it was. It just needed to be within a range of things and then life would adapt. So in other words- sure. We, you know, we want to be careful not to think about it moving toward life as we know it. It could have moved toward a different kind of life as we don't know it. And we still would get something, we sure. would still get some creative emergent thing, but it may Absolutely. not be exactly yeah, like the To one your we point, have. for example, yeah. the earth didn't have to be tilted. We'd still be fine. We just wouldn't have seasons. We'd still be right. fine if the earth Which, wasn't tilted. Right. And we wouldn't, but, but here's the thing that that tilt has consequences and the consequences are complexity so there is this trend toward complexity in other words if we didn't have seasons you wouldn't have the mixing of 
later on, you wouldn't have the mixing, you know, of organisms who have to be able to survive through the seasons. So that seasonality imparts on it a kind of resilience in the organisms that evolve. Same thing with the tides. If we didn't have the moon to pull the oceans around, we wouldn't have the mixing of the oceans and we wouldn't have the same kind of biodiversity that we have. So I don't know. It's just, these are all things that we just need to kind of understand just to know how, how special, (laughs) you know, and how, how beautiful it all is. It's, it's, I mean, once you start feeling these dynamics in daily life, man, life gets enriched because you, 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 you feel like you're participating in something that's just truly, you know, amazing. So it matters. Yeah. And, and, you know, to your point, I'm not a, uh, a, a, a science guy by nature. I was, mm-hmm. you know, not a math and science kid, you know, growing up. I was more in, a, in English and, and history guy, but, um, but, but like watching this video, for example, I didn't have any clue what a, you know, phospholipid bilayer <laughs> is. And, uh, and, and it was, it was so cool and, and how you celebrate the emergence of this and, but, but when you watch this video and you see how important it was that that how that ecological intelligence played a role in all of that can you can you can we talk about that or is it too soon to talk about the uh, no, actually, i've been waiting to talk about the phospholipid bilayer which i never heard of so for you listeners out there i'm not a science geek so if you're thinking this is too much science embrace it and have some fun with it yeah. so sorry rich well let's get there let's get to the phospholipid bilayer because that's it's it's that's where we need to go so we're back on the early earth. There are geysers, there are um, um, little puddles of water, there are asteroid impacts, magma everywhere, water's accumulating, dissolved minerals in that water. And what you've got there, by the way, especially with the geysers or, or hydrothermal vents, you've got this thermal gradient. In other words, you've got cold water around hot magma. That creates a gradient, a thermal gradient. There's another place where we saw the importance of a thermal gradient. Remember that one way back in Primordia? That was the tiny differences in temperature that created, you know, that from which new things could be created. In in the case of the cosmic wave background radiation, it was stars. In this case, it's driving new molecular combinations. So the dissolved things, the dissolved nutrients, these are organic compounds that are being created just... And when I say organic, I don't mean that they come from life, but they will later be used by life. The point is that we've got these organic compounds now now forming in these little ponds, these little puddles. Given millions of years of chance encounters, you get you get really interesting relationships between these molecular forms. One of the most interesting forms that developed was this thing called a liposome. A liposome is a molecule that just has one end that is what we call hydrophobic, which means that it tries to avoid water. It repel it repels water, kind of like oil repels water. It's it's a lipid. And then the other end is a phosphate. And the phosphate likes water. It can attract water. So we've got this phospholipid molecule. It's it's polarized. One end likes water, the other end doesn't. So if you've got this situation where you've got this molecule that has this kind of polarity to it, one of the things that can happen is you take two of these molecules and you stick them together 
and they're going to align with each other. You do that again and you get two, three, four, five. You can create this long chain, okay, a polymer of phospholipid molecules. It's called, and, and then what can happen is the end that wants to be away from the water avoids the water. The one that likes the water is attracted to the water. So what ends up happening is you get this two-layered um, membrane, which has the one that doesn't like water in the middle and the one that does like water on the edges so that it can stay in contact with the water. So you get these long chains of these phospholipid bilayers, and they're floating around in little pieces. Every time that this little puddle dries out, these things accumulate, like kind of like the rings of bathtub, bathtub scum that you can see on a dirty bathtub. Mm. But every time it floods again, it, it resuspends them in the water and they're free to interact. Well, at some point, and this is one of the things that we think happened, you take one of these long chains of a phospholipid membrane and it has two ends. And by chance, those two ends might loop around and bend toward each other until they come back into contact with each other. Okay, so when the moment that that happens, you've created, you've created a sphere. You've created a kind of oily sphere um, called a vesicle. We call it a vesicle. But the other thing that happens is that suddenly you've got an interior space and an exterior space. And this is something that, you know, the universe may have never seen before uh, an entity, a vesicle that has an interior space and an exterior space. And so <laughs> what end, what we think ended up happening is that this space, it's sort of like a proto cell. It's not alive yet by any measure of, you know, that we would use today, but you've got this interior space that can harbor different molecules that just happen to be enclosed within it when it, when it's sealed back up. So, but what you can see what's happening here is that we're slowly and seamlessly moving toward something that looks like life. Again, this is just, these are just geological components. They're just molecules arrived through geologic and chemical processes. They're trending toward life. Okay. Now you also have to remember that we've got millions of years to work with chance, chance encounters, 99.9% .9 of them won't have any effect or will be detrimental but there's that, that 1.001 percent that can make all the difference so what we think ends up happening is that you've got these these um these spherical membranes now the way to think of these things is not as like when i was trained in biology we were always taught to think of that as a wall it's a wall that protects the interior from the exterior and we've kind of inherited that way of thinking about it but in reality, what it really was, was not a wall, but it was a, a surface of contact between the inner and the outer. It's not permeable. only was it, a, yeah. what, what's that? Permeable. And it was yeah. permeable, exactly, that it had this inherent capacity to select certain things to let them through or other things to keep out. So it's not just a wall. It's actually, a, a, it's a it's a zone of contact, but it has but it can be discerning in what it let goes what it lets go through so it can let good things through things that it things that help to create help to advance the complexity and keep out the things that don't and see you can see how this very simple dynamic is like the the proto dynamic of life itself that's what we do we go about our lives sort of you know doing the things that make us feel good or that we know are healthy or that we you know that are going to advance life 
and try to avoid those things that are going to kill us. Like that's the discernment happening at a higher level. Anyway, these little vesicles, we call them, you know, given enough time and chance, will slowly evolve into a uh, into an entity. And I, I'm actually I won't call it an organism yet. It's more like a uh, it's a primitive cell, an archaic cell that can do things. It can have its own internal metabolism. It's figured out ways of using chemical and thermal gradients that, that are just part of the geologic process as a way to metabolize energy, to keep itself sustained. It's this self-sustaining system. It's called an autopoetic system. And so what you can see here is like, it's like proto-life. But so we've got these things that are doing this. And then something really amazing happens. You've got this proto-life cell-like thing, you know, billions of them. And they are, you know, just trying to get, trying to get ahead, you know, they're just doing their thing. And then at some point, a tactic for switching the energy source from the heat gradients of the earth to some other energy source. So can you think of another energy source that's in the vicinity of this, of this scene that these things might tap into? The sun. Exactly, exactly. They have figured out a way to capture this energy that's streaming off of this star and use that instead of thermal grade, the geothermal gradients that's now switched to solar, to, to using solar energy as their source of metabolism and, and the synthesis of new molecules that they can use. And so now we're really starting to get something toward left. We've got photosynthesis happening. Well, <clears throat> This is all happening in the ocean, by the way. The, the the continents themselves are still, you know, barren and rocky. And this is all happening, you know, in, in the oceans. And it's happening near this. Now it's shifting though to the surface of the oceans because down deep there's no there's no there's no um sunlight. And so photosynthesis can't happen down there. So you get this kind of division of organisms that operate deep in the ocean, away from you know, the sunlight. And but what these photosynthetic organisms are now doing is converting the carbon dioxide that happens to be in the atmosphere, and they're converting that carbon dioxide into, into oxygen in order to create energy. And this is called photosynthesis. So we have these first organisms, these blue-green algae now, that are creating oxygen in the oceans, the, that's, and that's sort of bubbling off and starting to accumulate in the atmosphere, and it's starting to accumulate in the oceans themselves. So remember, rain has been falling on the continents and dissolving the, the iron and the silicates. And that iron has flowed down into the oceans and it's floating around as free iron um, atoms of free iron. So because there's no oxygen, it doesn't rust. But as this photosynthetic organism starts to really be successful and starting to create ex an excess of oxygen, suddenly it flips. So what happens is that the the atmosphere of the earth and the gases dissolved in the ocean go from being carbon dioxide and methane and ammonium a reducing atmosphere which is like acidic they turn into one that is oxidizing because they're rich in oxygen now i was saying earlier how like the rocks don't lie this story is told in the rocks there's a formation called the banded iron formation that documents this process. So what we see happening is that the oceans have all this free iron floating around dissolved in it. 
once the oxygen, the byproduct of the photosynthesis starts to accumulate, it starts to rust. So the iron turns into iron oxide, which we, you know, you see it on any car in New England. That yeah. rust now settles down out of the water column down onto the ocean floor and, and in layers. So it gets layered with other sediments. Well, we can now find the evidence for this whole event, this whole oxygen catastrophe when the atmosphere switched from reducing to oxygenate to oxidizing is told in these banded iron formations. And we use those banded iron formations now to like extract iron to, to create, you know, metal. But anyway, so my, my point there is that, that through this process of life finding a way and switching to solar energy versus geothermal energy, you get this corresponding shift in the atmosphere from a carbon dioxide rich to oxygen. So my point there is that it's happened before that living organisms have fundamentally changed the, the, the composition of the atmosphere. And it's had, and, and here's the thing to remember, anything that had evolved, any kind of life forms that had evolved prior to this shift are now stuck. They're, they're no longer adapted to live in that atmosphere and they're reduced to you know tiny little crevices down in the muds where there's no oxygen. That's the only place they can live. They're anaerobic, so they can't live with oxygen. And so those organisms now, they're still alive, but they've just been relegated to these little tiny little corners. And then the organisms that were photosynthesizing or that could use oxygen started to flourish. This whole thing is happening in the within the the bubble or the envelope of these phospholipid um, um, containers, these little things called vesicles. So, which which yeah. I loved in the video because I think it it it's so you know resonated with me the fact that these are you know polar opposites, one that wants water, one that doesn't want want water, but they were able to work in a way that was a, I think you called it a mutually happy system. Um, yeah. I even, even love the analogy that you had, the you know, the, the Republican elephant and the Democrat mm -hmm. donkey uh, images in the, uh, you know, in the film. But, but I think that does kind of highlight, you know, that this intelligence was there and hopefully it is there. I mean, you know, in, in modern day, if only we could, only tap into that same intelligence and the Republican elephants and the democratic donkeys could, you know, uh, you know, operate in a mutually beneficial manner, uh, as well. Uh, what a better world it would be for sure. That's the wisdom that I'm talking about. Yeah. What we could call it ecological intelligence. And I do like to find that happy medium, that way of governing the system, like government, that's how life has always done it. It's figured out how to live in a way that will advance the creativity of life. That's been the creative life force of the universe from the get-go. Now humans do it through, you know, politics, through government, governance, <laughs> for better or worse, for better or for worse. But the point is that there is a deep intelligence that's operating not only in phospholipid membranes, that same intelligence can operate at a different scale that we call government. And, and, and that's, I think, something that I'm trying to do is to reestablish the intelligence of nature in culture. That's, that's, a, that's kind of the, the mission of Oika is to, to 
to, to understand that intelligence and to participate in it in a way that is mutually beneficial. So yeah, and I think also, Rich, the to to recognize and appreciate the yin and yang mm -hmm. of it all. Yeah, yeah, and and that there needs to be. You know, it, it, for almost selfish reasons, it behooves nature to form symbiotic relationships with their polar opposites. Absolutely, and, absolutely, yeah. Go ahead. And, 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 and I think, like you said, therein lies the wisdom. It's in our best interest to forge relationships with those that are maybe completely the opposite of us, and and it helps us thrive. Right. And it, and, and it helps new things emerge too. Like this is how the the new thing can happen. Um, so it's just important to keep that in mind. So is now a good point in time, Rich, to bring up fractals? I think so, because what we were just talking about is is a kind of fractal. We're talking about how there are coordinating dynamics, dynamics of governing the system that are happening at the at the level of the molecule, the phospholipid molecule. And we're talking about how those same dynamics show up at a different scale that we call government. That, what that's, that idea that these things happen across scales, one, one way to say it is that this is a reoccurring pattern that happens across scales. The technical definition of that is a fractal. So there are mathematical um, equations that describe how that can emerge. There are, the, there are these iterative, um, th there are these iterative formulas that when you let them run over time, they create repetitive patterns across scale. Those are fractals. Um, so we see them everywhere. Like once, once you have a radar for fractals, which are repeating patterns across scales, you start to see them everywhere that become like, like a lot of times I'll be out, you know, in the woods and I'll point at a tree. And as my hands up pointing at the tree, I see how the form of my hand, like there's my arm, which is kind of like a trunk. Then there's my hand, which is kind of like a branch. And then there's my fingers, which are kind of like twigs. And I'm pointing at a tree that has a similar form. It's a trunk with branches and, and twigs and leaves that dendritic pattern Right. And then that dendritic pattern shows up in like nervous systems. It, it shows up in the mega scale structure of the universe. It shows up in river patterns and things like that. So I'm seeing this fractal pattern happening across scales. Psychedelics, I, too, right? It, <laughs> well, it is kind of psychedelic because yeah. what it does is it, every fractal that I see when I, like it goes from being a concept of a fractal to the experience of a fractal. And when that happens, the experience that I feel is that there's a bridge that connects me to the world. That's the whole, that's, that's what they do is that they, they reveal just how continuous it all is because there are these, there are these dynamics that play out at the scale of the solar system of the landscape and of my nervous system. You see, that in and of itself is a narrative of continuity. That's that is a story of continuity. Th those dynamics reveal just how continuous we are 
with the world. Does that make sense? Totally. And yeah. I think I think that's one of those things. That's one of those ideas that can be felt. And when it's felt enough, when it's felt collectively, that will have an impact on the way that we relate to the world, which will have a, which which goes right back to this idea that we're in a meaning crisis. I think we're immersed in meaning. We've just forgotten how to see it. And that's what this story can do is it can it can show us ways of re-participating with that story together. That's the idea. Yeah, and I want to talk more about that at the at the end of the episode. Um, but but while we're on this, how you know, is that your advice, Rich, on how we can feel fractals, you know, more is to just stop and look around and observe and open our awareness? Yeah, especially if you have some some inkling, some version of this story that I'm telling. Like if you have that in the background, it's there's this abiding story. Yeah, then every every moment where you're just caught by the beauty of the world or a pattern in the world or the sound of a bird or the way that light reflects off something, it 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 replaces you back into that to that story of and it's a story of belonging of deep belonging so yes like and there are you know it's not just about all these concepts i can rattle on the science all day long but the fact is that all of these science concepts are actually experiences to be had and they're and the way we get to those experiences is through practices yeah in you talk a lot about the uh, the three core concepts of Oika for artists. Mm -hmm. And you talk about the creative power at the convergence of narrative, emergence, and fractals, mm -hmm. those three components. Can you break that down for us and how sure. those coexist and relate? Yeah, and I'm glad that we've taken the time to like, we have now visited all three of those concepts. Like we're telling this story, this narrative. We are understanding how narrative is how human beings make meaning. And in the final episode, I'm going to actually track where that comes from. turns out it comes from the earth too. No big surprise there. But anyway, we've talked about narrative as a, as a, a deep functional structure for making meaning. We've talked about emergence, which is how new things can um, emerge, appear, um, and now we've talked about fractals, which is this way of thinking about how things can, patterns can um, amplify across scales. So with those three concepts now, we've got, we've got a really powerful combination. We've got the capacity to understand narrative, disrupt our narratives, to let new narratives emerge. So that's the first two concepts. And then once those new narratives emerge, how do they get replicated from the personal level that we're experiencing them to the cultural level? Well, through fractal dynamics. And so that's how those three things sort of play in with each other. And that is a perfect setup, I think, for artists. So artists who understand narrative function and can disrupt their narratives and can let new narratives emerge through emergence can then, um, can then reiterate or or amplify those narratives in culture through fractal dynamics. That's the that's the idea. That's one way in which Oika um, 
um, can can appreciate and value the work of artists. That's the idea there. I love a quote from one of your films that says, new ways of living with nature are needed in order to transform the inner mindscapes and outer landscapes of humanity. Wow. That's, and that's, that sums it up. But that's, and, and that's, that's such a statement of fractals, right? It's, there's a point in the film where I say, um, that, you know, a teenager's messy room is a fractal of their messy thinking. Like, yeah. this is really important. It's, what it's saying is that the world that we create reflects the qualities of our minds. And that's kind of where we are. Like right now, you know, we're creating this world that's, 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 that's alien because we feel alienated, right? Like, so this is the injury that Oika seeks to kind of heal, to say, Let's realign the way we think with the way nature works. And that will create a kind of coherence that, that is, and when I say coherence, I really mean resilience that, that, that can ensure our participation in the cosmic story into the future. I know that sounds really grandiose and, and naive. It is grandiose, but it's not naive. So, but that is the, that is the work here. Like that is the, the function of Oika. You mentioned early on in our conversation today, climate change, and I want to make sure we circle back to that. Well, one of the um, byproducts of this great oxygen catastrophe, as it's called, or the oxygen revolution, is that um, it changed the heat capacity of the atmosphere. I mean, we're seeing this today. With less carbon dioxide, you're going to have a cooling planet. And so that's precisely what happened. The, um, the planet went into a period of deep, deep cooling, and it triggered uh, ice ages. And what this eventually did was this, it's called the Huronian glaciation. Uh, two and a half billion years ago or so, there was a 300 million year period where the earth, it's thought, essentially froze almost from pole to pole. And uh, there's evidence for this, but, but one of the consequences of that is that life got quite um, muted during that time. And it, it, it churned along slowly under the ice, but it created a, uh, a time when life was really dormant for a long time on the planet. And I think that's where the Earthea episode can end, um, because we will pick it up again when, when the glaciation eventually does start to melt, it triggers this incredible uh, resurgence of life called the Cambrian explosion. But I think that's where, you know, I draw the line on the Earthea episode is at the, at the, um, at what's called the snowball earth. So we have a frozen earth that needs to go and hibernate for some time. Nice. Then if we could wrap up this episode with, you talk a lot about practice. And I watched a YouTube video yesterday where you passionately go through your ritual of what you call hammocking or taking your hammock out in nature. And, mm -hmm. uh, and, and I love how you're just showing the reverence for nature. Can, you, uh, can we close today and, and have you talk a little bit about the importance of practice? Sure. Um, as I was saying earlier that this isn't really just a 
list of concepts. These aren't just scientific concepts to be known. They're actually experiences to be had. And um, one of the ways that I've found that's really um, effective is to just spend time quietly and um, listening and observing the world and holding you know, in my mind an abiding appreciation for this story that I've been telling and seeing how it manifests all around me. You know, when I see the way that photons streaming from that nuclear furnace that we call the sun, you know, eight light minutes away and it's reflecting off of a leaf. And I know something about how that photon is, you know, traveling that eight light minutes from that source, bouncing off of that leaf, picking up, you know, quantum information and then and then reflecting into me, you know, and, and affecting the atoms that are in me. And I don't know, there's just a, um, it's, it's, it's quite a, um, um, it can get, it can get, it can feel emotional. You know, you can feel like, wow, like I'm part of this. And, um, that is one of the practices. That's kind of what hamwiking is all about. There's there's a, a specific practice that we can do where um, that taps into things like fractals and continuity. Uh, it's called it's called radical affection. It's uh, so what you do is you you you, t you get a hammock and you go out into the woods somewhere and uh, you start looking for trees that you can hang your hammock in. And the act of doing that just that simple act of looking for a place to put a hammock puts you in a relational state of mind because you're, you're looking for two trees that are in the right relationship. Right. And so by doing that, you find these trees and you, you approach them and you approach them with reverence. And in a way I sort of like say, is it okay? Is this okay to put my hammock here? And I listen, I wait, you know, to see if, what it feels like. And, you know, and usually it's okay. And so I prepare the surface. And here's one of the things I realized. It's like, you know, you can go into a place and you can strap your hammock up there and tie a rope around it and jump in it and take a nap. But if you don't take the time to really care for the space, you don't get the, you don't get that care reflected back. So what I realized is that if I go and I really take the care to be gentle with the tree and to wrap you know, with a strap that will protect the tree. And, and it creates a, it creates a different atmosphere in which to, to be. So, so in, in a sense, what I'm doing is when you, when you find these two trees that are in right relationship, you actually enter into that relationship because you're getting in between them and you are hanging a hammock and then you're going in and you're spending time and you're listening and you're, you're, you're looking at the tree and you're like, you become part of that relationship. It's a different experience than just, you know, I'm going to do what I'm going to do no matter what. And I'm going to, you know, just extract an experience out of it. That's not what this is. This is about participating in the relationships that are around us. And it's a completely different experience of the world. And what I find, and it, it always blows my mind, is when, when you do it in this way, in this sort of thoughtful, appreciative way, everything that you're doing gets reflected back. I mean, birds come and sit and land and look and, you know, or deer come up to me or even bears, you know, will come up and be like, it's somehow 
if I do it in a respectful, appreciative, belonging way, it gets appreciated by the world. And this makes perfect sense once you understand how, how these little phospholipid bilayer envelopes that I was talking about, once you understand what they do, how they communicate, um, how living things communicate with each other, you can understand how this works. But so anyway, I guess this is just one way of um, um, describing one of the practices of Oika, which is to just spend contemplative, appreciative time. And what you end up walking away with is is gratitude. And um, I think gratitude is an incredibly powerful force, especially, you know, well, what do I usually say that that gratitude is the antidote to grievance. And so this is one way in which like an Oika practice can help us cultivate that kind of relationship, a right relationship with the world. I know this all sounds very, uh, you know, <laughs> no, I, pseudo, I, pseudo-scientific or whatnot, but uh, that's what it is. Yeah, I, I think uh, I've never heard more beautifully expressed how to go set up a hammock in nature and enjoy yourself. And, and, and like you said, you just highlighted the difference, Rich, between just showing up and you being there by yourself, getting away from it all and, you know, tying it up to two, you know, stationary objects, like, like there were two flagpoles. And that as opposed to going and, and existing as part of the entire community of life around you and, and the energy that you are putting out, the energy that you are co-creating with the forest becomes a mm. completely different, more magical experience. So yeah. no, thank you for sharing that. <laughs> Love Thanks it. for appreciating it. Okay, next week, it just keeps getting better and better. We are up to part four, Animalia. Can't wait. Rich, we'll see you next week. Awesome. Thanks, Steve. Bye-bye. In next week's episode, Animalia, things get even more exciting as we have ice ages, storms, volcanic eruptions, DNA arrives, and the Earth begins to form its first living memories. Plants and then animals start to evolve, along with eyes that can see light. But we'll ask the question, what are eyes actually seeing after all? The answer may leave you with a curious awe and wonder. That and more is in store in next week's part four of History of the Cosmos. We'll see you then. Special thanks to our producer, Noah Existe, and editor, Joe Tempoco. Our music was written and performed by Algian Importante. Thank you so much for listening. If this podcast brightened your day in any way, please share it with a friend who you think it might resonate with. Subscribe and leave us a rating and review, as that is the single best way to help the show and get the word out to more good humans. For behind-the-scenes info, please visit our website at betterplaceproject.org, where you can even click on the microphone in the lower right-hand corner and leave us a message or just stop by to say hi. And you can follow us on Instagram at betterplaceproject.org, and you'll find me at Instagram at Steve Norris Official. Look for small ways to be kind this week, and that will help make the world a better place. Make the world.